You are listening to the Football Odyssey. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and today we will be discussing Gridiron Spies with Kevin Bryant, a 20-year Army veteran who just published his first book called Spies on the Sidelines, The High Stakes World of NFL Espionage, a fascinating book that looks at how NFL teams use intelligence gathering methods to gain a competitive edge on their opponents. I think we have a fun conversation for you today that will pique your interest in the book and perhaps make you want to buy the book. I've posted a link to Kevin's website in the event you want to make the purchase. And as always, if you enjoyed the conversation and the show, feel free to subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow us on social media. With that said, I now bring you my conversation with Kevin Bryant. When I started the show two years ago, I never anticipated that I would have someone from the Department of Defense on the show, but luckily for me, we do have you on now because your book, Spies on the Sideline, The High Stakes World of NFL Espionage, has recently been published. Um, Before we get to your background into the Department of Defense, was publishing a book something that's always been on your bucket list? Yeah, you know, it has been for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I... um, you know, writing a nonfiction book was not my goal originally when I was when I was writing. Really, I wanted to uh, I wanted to write a, a fictional book and tried that, went that route, and crashed and burned completely. <laughs> Started, uh, I gave it up. I gave up writing probably for five six years, and um, I was I knocked out a couple of master's degrees and had to write a thesis for one of them. And when I was writing the thesis, I was like, you know, this is a really this is really good product. And I actually found myself enjoying, enjoying the research end of it, enjoying the writing of the thesis. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm just better at writing nonfiction than I am fiction. And so, um, once I had knocked out that, that master's, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, and I, you know, finally found the subject of this book that I wanted to write on. I, I, I decided I, what the heck, I'll give it a shot, man. I'm a glutton for punishment. Let's try round two. Was the, the fiction books, same territory as spies on the sideline? Not at all. You know, and I've, I've kind of entertained writing a fictional book on this subject. I think it, you could probably crank out a pretty uh, interesting story about spying and football and all that kind of stuff. But no, no, it was actually just a uh, it was uh, it was a fantasy book, uh, completely, completely unrelated. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fantasy uh, nerd uh, when it comes to, you know, reading books. I love Robert Jordan, Brandon Sanderson. Um, but, you know, I just learned, you know what, that's probably that's probably not my forte as an author. So. Yeah, I think this would be an interesting book to go from uh, like a fictional standpoint because there's so many different ways you could go from it because I actually got really interested in this topic whenever I first heard about the Operation Handholding during the AFL-NFL war. Um, mm-hmm. And then you and I had talked when we first connected about Dan Day's interference and the book to me had sounded like um, like an on-the-field equivalent of interference with the clandestine measures that teams will take to gain a competitive edge. But whenever you read, you see that there's definitely a fine line between illicit and legal spying on that teams resort to, to get that competitive edge. And it kind of felt like, as I was going along, like if Paul Zimmerman were to have written a book about scouting and a topic like this. So for me, it was a pleasant surprise learning about how everything had encompassed um, into these measures uh, but I, I'm curious if you were to look at this from a fictional standpoint, what particular instance would you want to cover? Oh man. Um, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like to get into 
Because I think one of the things I get into in Spies on the Sidelines is how many championship games have been affected by the collection efforts that teams use, whether those be permissible techniques like, um, you know, just film study. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the Broncos versus the Panthers Super Bowl was a great example of that, you know, with um, with Wade Phillips really figuring out Cam Newton and how to defeat the Panthers offense um, with him. And, um, you know, so going through that and then, you know, I mean, obviously there's all these different illicit techniques that I talk about in my book that have also been used in lots of championship games. And so I think it'd be really neat to just kind of write a book about you know, let's say, you know, fictionally, it's a team that's kind of like, um, you know, the Patriots or so, and you get to the championship game, you know, they're going to try collecting on you. So what do you do about it? You know, what can you do to fool them and kind of, you know, pull the wool over their eyes, make them think one thing where you're going another way completely? Um, how do you how do you do that misdirection right. well enough to be able to trick them? Because that's the thing, whenever you're whenever you collect information. You, you know, you try to figure out what a team's going to do in advance. You open yourself up. It's great if you can do it, but you open yourself up to the possibility of being fooled, which has happened by many teams. Many teams in the NFL have done this in the past and pulled it off successfully. Um, So I think that'd be a really interesting subject to be able to go into. Yeah, sort of like the week leading up to a Super Bowl and focusing from that one vantage point of how they're going to deflect. Yeah, precisely. Yep. Now, you, you come from an intelligence background, right, with the Department of Defense? Yeah, so I work for the Department of Defense. Um, I, I come from a background. I've collected um, collected and protected information for the Department of Defense for um, 23 years now and uh, spent 13 years as a special agent. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I've got a lot of experience in the in this uh, in this field. I've got a master's degree in sports management and intelligence studies. So it's, uh, you know, I'm writing about a topic I know a bit about. What brought you to the DOD and specifically Intel work? Was was your family member, did you have a family member involved before or was it just something that always fascinated you? Um, so, yeah, I mean, just the DOD in particular. Um, my dad was in the Navy. So I really, um, you know, um, I had that background. Um, I, I you know, if you would have asked me growing up if I was ever going to be in the military, I would have said, heck no, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. But, you know, I think we all kind of revert to our parents at some point, right? Sure. Uh, we see, you know, I'm never going to be like them. And then you end up, you know, just like them, which, you know, my dad's a great guy. So I don't have any problems with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, sense of adventure. Um, wanted, to, wanted to do something, um, you know, wanted an interesting job, wanted to travel the world um, see some stuff and the, uh, you know, being, being with the army certainly, certainly has afforded me, afforded me all those, uh, opportunities. Um, got to see lots of places I want and lots of places I didn't, but you know, that's part of the job. What was number one on the list of places you wanted to see? Oh man, I've been to so many places. So I've lived in, uh, lived in Germany for seven years total, um, between two stints over there. So, you know, if it's in Western Europe, um, I've seen it, uh, was lucky enough to get to go to Turkey a mm. couple of times, uh, got to go to Istanbul, which was, you know, incredible city, amazing to see, uh, Prague and Czech and Czech Republic was one of my favorite, uh, destinations. Um, but you know, we've been camping in Luxembourg, um, been on a cruise through the, through the Baltic, 
tons of fun. Um, yeah, lo lots of places I still love to see, but uh, I've been very, very blessed and fortunate to be able to see uh, uh, a ton of Europe. It's been really neat. Now, what about your background as a football fan? Were you always interested in the game? Did you play? Yeah, so um, I'm a like whopping five foot five and three quarters. I know because my wife just uh, measured my height when she was measuring my daughter the other day. So, um, and I weigh like a buck thirty five, soaking wet. So football is not my sport as a player. Um, I love playing backyard ball. Growing up, uh, I'm a soccer player. I'm a quick, speedy little guy. So when it comes to backdoor games, you know, West I think Walker's I'm all head. that. Right. But as soon as you start tackling, um, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want any part of that. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up a football fan. My, um, probably, probably about sixth grade was about when I started getting the football fever. Um, my dad was a big, big Seahawks fan and I was watching a game, uh, Seahawks Broncos. And I saw Elway just tear up the Seahawks. And after that, I was like, Whoa, I like that team. I like Elway. This is cool. Um, and, you know, probably just to be a punk, despite my dad, you know, I, I had to, you know, cheer for the other team and, you know, um, but ever since then, I've been a big Broncos fan. Well, now it's funny that, uh, Russell Wilson now comes over to the Broncos. So it's kind of like the two generations colliding. Yeah. You know, it's been really, uh, the Broncos have been super fortunate in, uh, in landing great quarterbacks, you know, I mean, Elway, Manning, um, and now Russell Wilson, uh, it's a pretty, pretty storied. A group of players there and yeah it's kind of cool that um you know russell wilson uh came over right it's kind of you know um the merger of uh broncos and seahawks as a matter of fact i need to talk to my dad about that he, he'll probably listen to this anyway so dad you need to think about becoming a broncos fan now that we got you know seattle's like main dude now for a lot of the authors that i've interviewed are also heavy readers um specifically with football books so what are some of your favorite books on your uh football bookshelf Oh my gosh. So I've got like, I read like 60 books, uh, researching this one. So, um, man, there's so many good ones. Um, I'm trying, I'm looking up cause I'm looking at all my books I got sitting up here. Um, yeah, you mentioned Dan Moldea, um, his interference book. I would say that one is probably right at the top of my list because what that goes into is everything to deal with NFL security, which I think is just a fascinating topic. Sure. Um, you know, everything about how they deal with, uh, you know, trying to make sure that uh, players, coaches, managers, et cetera, aren't betting on games, um, how they protect, or go about protecting players, um, just how they go about protecting the shield and their image. And then, uh, you know, he gets into, it much like my book spies on the sidelines does as well. Um, when it came to all things, Patriots, whether it's Spygate or deflate gate, um, just how, you know, the bottom line is the NFL's business and they want to protect their image. And it's, you know, that comes at a bit of a price at times. Right. And it's not always what's uh, the most ethical or the best thing for, you know, um, the fans, it can be, hey, how do we resolve this issue quietly or quickly? Which, which you know, uh, I think Dan Moldea went into really well in his book. And, you know, I, I also, you know, hammer home that book, that point, I think, in Spies on the Sidelines. Yeah, that was a book that really blew me away whenever I first read it, because you really learn about how 
the security force isn't just people who are there on game day to make sure that nothing catastrophic happens, right? Like it's very investigative and sometimes it acts as, you know, sort of like the private intelligence arm of the owners. Um, a lot of times it's making sure, you know, following players to make sure that nothing will happen when they go out and about at bars or any sort of circumstance that could really put the team's image in harm's way. So that, that was something when I first read, I was like, wow, this guy really uncovered a whole new universe underneath the image that I had no idea or maybe I knew existed, but didn't give much thought to how elaborate it really was. Right. Yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because those, those NFL security guys, for the most part, they're former law enforcement and very heavily former FBI agents. So, you know, they've got a wealth of experience and they've got all those ties to all the police departments and whatnot. So whenever there's an issue, you know, they can tap in into those um, connections that they have and try to resolve all these problems really quietly right. um, and really quickly. And uh, which, you know, it makes sense. Um, it's, it's smart uh, from the NFL's aspect. Um, you know, it, you know, perhaps a little, you know, shady, but let's face it. Um, that's how big business operates. And that's not, it's not just the NFL thing. That's big business at large. Yeah. I was going to say any fortune 500 company probably follows the same playbook. Right. Yeah, exactly. So for, from your point of view, you have obviously covered similar territory in terms of the clandestine behavior um, at the team level and at the NFL level, what was it like for you to try to get people to cooperate into doing an interview for a book like this? Because you mentioned in a uh, preface how some people might not want to speak because it could do some harm to the team's legacy or even some harm to their own legacy. So what was it like, first of all, going about finding the people that would actually want to do this and then convincing them to do an interview if there was any hesitation? Yeah, it was it was like trying to convince people to get a uh, free root canal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was it was tough. It was it was tough. Um, so, you know, there's a number of factors that play into that. So. First of all, if teams have information on how they operate, whether it's how they collect information or how they protect information for their team, um, those are trade secrets. Right. Those providing that information can can potentially compromise their techniques and tactics that they use and could have a negative effect on their ability to gather that information and ultimately win games. So a lot of the time what you're looking at is trying to interview former, uh, you know, NFL coaches or NFL, you know, members of an NFL staff. Um, but even that's very difficult because these guys don't want to tarnish any images of a team, of a coach, you know, they, they don't want to taint a legacy. And they especially don't want to talk about people that are still working in the league. Because, you know, even if it's somebody they don't really like or don't really care about, it's still someone whose paycheck and whose livelihood comes down to, you know, their job with the NFL. Sure. So it was very difficult. The interviews that I did, that I, I did get, were all anonymous. Um, no one wants to provide that openly. Um, and frankly, I was a first-time author writing about a very sensitive subject and requesting interviews of people that were sometimes millionaires, right? So it's a big ask. Yeah. You know, it's, it was not easy to do. Now that I'm a published author and I'm working on book two, which is spying in college football, 
I find it much, much easier to be able to get these interviews because I've already established a, a lot of relationships now. And, um, and I'm published. And people are like, oh, okay, this kid's legit now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, before he was just some random dude asking for an interview, right? which, you know, I mean, I called up some, you know, I remember calling up an athletic director for the college book before I was published. And I was like, hey, I'd like to interview your head coach. He's like, okay, who are you? and What have you done? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm not published yet, but I hope to be. And it was, you know, I, you know, that was the end of that conversation, you know. And now it's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm published and I've been interviewed by, you know, ESPN radio and CBS TV and, you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and now, you know, I just. Now they'll fly you out. Uh, yeah, I was, I was asking to be interviewed by Orlando Franklin on, on his, he's got a show, uh, Orlando and Cecil mm. um, out in Denver, you know, I was asking to be interviewed by him and, you know, I get to look at my Twitter and I've got a message from Orlando Franklin, you know, nice. former Broncos player, like, yeah, we'd love to have you on, you know, and I'm like, man. This is so much nicer. Like right. this is this is awesome. This is great. So yeah. <laughs> now you'll get athletic directors reaching out to you and to be in the in your next book. Hey, that'd be that'd be nice. So so being that you were a first time author, like if you could go back and do anything differently in terms of trying to secure those interviews or persuade anybody, would you have tried to do something differently? I don't want to ask like, should you have, you know, maybe done another book first in order to make it a little easier to get those interviews? Because obviously this was something that you were passionate about, but was there anything right. that you think would have helped the process or, you know, ease it up a little bit? Well, you know, oddly enough, um, I know when you think of social media, everybody's all about Twitter and Instagram and like Facebook, right? I mean, those are your, those are the staples go to. Everybody was just like, yeah, have those accounts and don't worry about anything else. But strangely enough, LinkedIn has been like my go-to on social media. Um, and it's allowed me to connect with so many NFL players, coaches, and then, you know, college um, guys as well. And so if I had to do it over, I would have started that a lot earlier and tried that route to connect with people because I find, um, yeah, they're very willing to engage on LinkedIn, almost, I guess, because it's a professional setting. And it's, you know, me as a professional coming to you as a professional and asking, you know, for a, a, a professional interview. Um, and so I would have I would have tried to tap into that a lot more um, if I had to do it all again. And, you know, knowing what I know now. But, um, yeah, I mean, writing a book, there's so many lessons I learned that um, you just. You just don't know till you jump in there and you try to do it and find out what works. And, you know, and I got so much great advice along the way from, you know, from agents, literary agents, and then the publisher. And it's just, a, it's a steep learning curve for your first book is the reality of it. Whenever you were pitching the idea to agents and uh, publishing houses, did they confuse the topic at all with espionage and cheating? Because I, you, in the book, obviously you mentioned how there are, legitimate methods to conduct espionage like advanced scouting and then there's the illicit ways so whenever they first saw the title or you were telling them do they think it was going to be a book about cheating or do they know from the get-go that this was going to be you know a combination of you know legal methods and illegal methods yeah so i mean even at probably every third podcast i do i'm it's still like i'm having that conversation of hey this isn't i'm not just talking about 
all the, you know, illicit methods, like, you know, we know Spygate, we know Deflategate, right? Right. It's not just that. There's so many things that are either permissible, you know, they're completely, you know, permitted by the NFL, by the rules and the bylaws. Um, and then I also get into the book, you know, a lot of stuff that's questionable. It's permitted, but is it ethical? Um, and do teams feel comfortable doing it? Like using lip reading, for example. You know, all those coaches, they hold up those play sheets to cover their mouth yeah. now, right? But, you know, you're going to have a lot of coaches that say, yeah, that's a really underhanded tactic to be able to use. Um, so I try to cover, you know, or licitation. Like I got an example in my book of Peyton Manning going to the Pro Bowl and trying to feed fellow Pro Bowlers Mai Tai drinks to get them a little intoxicated and to get them, you know, um, get them talking about, you know, their team secrets. You know, is that permissible? Sure. But there's no rule against it. Is it a little sneaky and underhanded? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's the NFL. So I, I go the full gamut of all that range of stuff, I think. And so, yeah, absolutely. It was tough to get the, uh, sometimes to get people to understand where I was going with it. And, you know, the reality is when you're submitting a proposal, especially to agents, you know, a, qu a query letter, it's one page. So it's a lot of stuff. You got to tell them, you know, all about you and all about your book in one page. And it's, uh, it's very, it can be very difficult. Um, you spend a lot of time crafting it, man. I mean, uh, I don't know how much time I spent revising that thing, but it, it was probably about as much time as I spent writing a chapter of the book because you're just, you're fine tuning that thing to the nth degree because the reality is when you're trying to like publish a sports book, there are only so many agents that are taking a look at that, right? There's probably 40 or 50 agents total out there that are, that are considering sports books. And if you don't land one of them, you're done. Like, that's it. There's no more, to, there's nowhere else to go except for to self-publish at that point. Why is it so niche? It, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, but it's just very, it's just very, um, there's only so many guys out there. I mean, so these guys, you know, they don't make huge commissions. So you talk about one sports agent. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's going to take a very minimal, um, cut of your book. You know, I mean, he takes one, you know, one, 2% of, of your sales. So how much does that, you know, how many sales does he have to earn to make a living? Sure. So he has to have a ton of books out there that he represents a bunch of authors that he represents to be able to make a decent living. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get a lot of the same people representing, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 books. And that's, you know, that's, that's how it goes. And you, there's just so many sports books out there. There's, you know, there's just not, not an infinite number. So. Yeah. Well, like I mentioned earlier, as I was reading the book, it kind of transformed uh, my opinion of it a little more to being from Dan Day to like Paul Zimmerman, because whenever you do get into the scouting of it all about how teams really notice tendencies, like when Terrell Davis or uh, Terrell Owens would, you know, tuck his gloves and they would know that he was going out for a pass or if receivers, you know, go bursting out of the huddle, it's probably going to be a pass where if they're, you know, very lackadaisical, uh, it's probably going to be a run, you know, those little tell signs. Um, and that, that was interesting because in a lot, in, in a way that a thinking man's guide to pro football taught me a lot about 
certain aspects of a coach's approach or psychology but without making it like a tutorial of a how-to i think you did that with scouting so is that for you something that you wanted to balance out where you didn't want to make it you know a coaching book about scouting or anything like that but to offer unique perspective as to what they do and how they approach their job yeah it was a fine line you know i didn't want to just try to make this a like uh you know, sensational book in the aspect of, you know, mm-hmm. here are all your dirty little, you know, here's all the dirty little things, you know, because at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is just permissible and I don't want to exaggerate it. I don't want to try to blow it up and, you know, make it something it's not and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's also just so many stories, you know, like I said, I had to work, I worked for eight years finding enough material to flesh out this book because it's a very secretive subject. So, you know, for every story that is in that book, there are 15 or 20 probably that have been hidden and will never come out in the light of day. So, you know, trying to find those, those few that are available, um, it was, it was, man, it was not easy. It was really hard to do. So, and that's another reason, you know, if I just went for all the clandestine uh, types of activity that went out there. There's just not enough stories to make a whole book out of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's a reason, but I also think it's really interesting. Um, you know, not going into everything that's permissible, everything that's questionable. And then more so what are the countermeasures that teams use to, to defend against all of this stuff, which I personally find just as interesting a subject as all the collection efforts, because, you know, a guy like Peyton Manning, you know, Okay, so he goes and guy tries to get the guys intoxicated to collect on them. But at the same time, he's a guy who, when he's with the Broncos, has them stop the bus on the way to uh, the Patriots stadium where the Broncos were going to practice and says, you know what? Instead of doing our walkthrough practice at their stadium, let's do our walkthrough in the woods. <laughs> And leads them on this hike through the woods to this open area because he's like, yeah, someone's going to be spying on us there. So, you know, and that may sound absolutely insane and crazy, but you know what? It's the teams that take the, the, that seriously enough to be that paranoid. Those are the guys that are winning championships and Super Bowls. And I'll tell you right now, you think of the teams that are perennially turning out really bad or not great teams. Those are the same teams that are not doing all the little things. So it may sound like absolutely paranoid to be looking on film to see who's adjusting gloves like this, like Terrell Owens did, or to be holding practices in the woods. But who's winning Super Bowls? It's the Peyton Manning's that are trying to get players intoxicated, that are pulling guys out into the woods, that are doing everything, little thing extra to get that advantage. And those are the guys and the teams that are that are winning championships, plain and simple. And it seems like the guy that he would lose most often to is the coach that excels at this stuff better than anyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And that's one of the things I go, I go into the book, and I think it really highlights – how many big games, how many championships have really been had a huge, huge impact from teams collecting 
and get in that advantage. And, um, you know, and, and in the military, we call it a force multiplier. Mm. You know, all that information you gather. And that's what it is. You know, the, the Patriots may be better than the, than, uh, you know, I mean, the Colts may be better than the Patriots, you know, when they play. But if the Patriots can gather that little bit of information that gives them the advantage, guess what? That can, that can tip the scales and put the, you know, get them, get them the advantage and put them in, uh, give, give them the chance that they need to win the game. And um, it's critical, especially in t- today's NFL, where the league is built around parity mm-hmm. because of the way the draft is done and because of the salary cap. Teams need that advantage, and and the teams that that are winning are the ones that are able to collect, um, assimilate and assimilate that information better than others, and protect protect their own information as well. Well, it also seems from a psychological standpoint that the um, the sort of I know that you know that I know philosophy that illusion even can create like this distraction that takes the team like that almost makes the team forget that there's a game to be played on the field you know like when you're talking about you know Peyton Manning has to bring in his receivers into the showers of uh, Gillette Stadium and put the showers on and whisper so and you know he's worried that the room is bugged or something you know stuff like that I think can kind of break focus for a lot of teams because they get so paranoid that someone's watching or someone's listening that perhaps they even forget to focus on the things they have to do on the field and the the play itself yeah that's exactly it Aaron I mean you know if you look at a team schedule it's it's very regimented and there's very little time for anything out of the ordinary uh pretty much every minute of every day is accounted for for these guys right Mm -hmm. especially for the coaching staff so if you play a team that you're worried about all these different types of collection and you know that may be the Patriots today but that's changed over time and, you know, that's, you know, I mean, George Hallis with the Bears was big on this, you know, um, you know, Vince Lombardi back in the day, um, you know, um, Sid Gilman with the Chargers, uh, you know, there's there's a whole laundry list of coaches that have been willing to, you know, go out of the way um, and have been very, very good at collecting information on other teams. And so. Um, yeah, where the heck was I going with this, Aaron? I don't know. Um, well, that, 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 that's actually a good point to my next question was, yeah, there seems to me when I was reading a book, like recurring characters, you know, whether it's Belichick, Al Davis, Sid Gilman, Hallis, um, you know, were these guys that you knew you wanted to incorporate in the book or was it something that the more information you found out, the more recurring characters that came in and you really knew who to focus on? Because, and this wasn't something I necessarily had thought of before, but when you talk about all these guys, you know, there really is a certain personality type that they all fit into. And that can really explain why they're all great coaches is that they're so deliberately there. They have such a deliberate attention to detail and they really will resort to any out of the box method to gain that advantage. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting, really interesting question. So if you look at, you know, there are, obviously we all know about coaching trees, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say likewise, um, one of the things that has impacted coaches is who they have been assistants for in the past when it comes to, you know, seeing how, how other coaches go about gathering and protecting information. So I'll give you an example. Um, so like Sid Gilman. Okay. So 
he guess guess who one of his assistants was al, al davis. davis right and then you know you take a guy like al davis who was assistant under him mike shanahan and he was pretty involved in all this stuff mm-hmm. and who absolutely loved al davis and was interviewed by al davis uh to be his you know uh defensive coordinator at one point bill belichick so you know you look at these at these trees and these guys are learning this stuff from other coaches. So that absolutely comes into play. Um, I think it has a very big, big effect on, um, yeah, on their development. And it, it absolutely, um, you know, I didn't set out to write about these guys. It was one of those things when I was going through the research of the book, you know, some, some names just keep popping up over and over again because they're doing so much different stuff or even, you know, you start a name for yourself and you just become suspected of everything. And mm-hmm. that's where Billichek is these days. Right. So, you know, Spygate went on, the Playgate went on. Well, now he does everything, you know, no one really knows, but absolutely, you know, he's involved in everything. Right. Um, he's involved in listening devices in the locker room. Like, you know, like Peyton Manning was worried about, you know, is he, I don't probably not, you know, I don't know, but, but the fear is there. And that is something you know, Belichick's never going to deny that. You know, Al Davis was accused of that. And he just laughed. You know, when he was, when a reporter asked him that question, you know, hey, you know, he just said, well, I'll tell you one thing, you know, the, you know, the listening device wouldn't be up in the ceiling, you know, and, they, and he just left it at that because right. he wants to give that illusion that, yeah, I'm willing to go there, you know, because other teams have to worry about that. Then they have to drag wide receivers into the shower room to talk. They have to whisper. They have to say, oh, you know what? We can't even give a, a you know, our pregame strategy in the locker room. We're going to have to do this on the bus or somewhere else or not do it all, do it all together. Um, and that, it affects the team. You know, those are routines. And every single player and coach loves those routines and they thrive off them. And when you, when you make another team change it, it impacts them. And when you make another team plan for it, it takes time out of their schedule. Okay, coach, how are we going to deal with this? Okay, if we think the other teams, you know, like the Patriots have been accused of, if we think maybe they're stealing play sheets out of the locker room, who are we going to, are we going to have to leave people behind to deal with that? If we think there's listening devices in the locker room, how are we going to deal with that? If they think we're spying, they're spying on our practices, what are we going to deal with that? Man, these are, those are big questions that consume a lot of time and take a lot of planning. And it detracts from something. It detracts from the time they have to game plan against Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, you know, the best coach or the best quarterback in the NFL. Obviously, Brady's not there anymore. But those are the type of things, you know, that, that teams have to deal with when, you know, just dealing with the ordinary Patriots is a monumental task. Well, even in the book, you mentioned how, because uh, you were talking about how, you know, you have to you're not even going to trust to go over a game plan in a locker room. You want to do it on the bus. But in your book, you bring up how someone tried to sneak on a bus. I think it was with Weeb Eubank with the Jets. So he stopped and had the guy kicked off. I don't remember who the player was. But you know, just attempts like those will show you that there's no method that's out of the realm of possibility to at least try. And the best example was when you were talking about, um, I think, Sid Gilman suspected, or maybe he um, had a woman pushing a baby stroller and – uh, supposedly there was a dwarf inside used to take pictures of the formations of the opponent that week. Yeah. I mean, 
you you hit it you hit the nail on the head, Aaron. I mean, teams really are willing to go to anything. I mean, there's stories in the book of you know how a team has used a priest to collect information on other teams. You know, you got the story like you mentioned of a dwarf, uh, you know, little person being pushed in a stroller. You know, um, allegedly, uh, you know, holding a video camera to record a practice. Um, you know, that was uh, that was with the you know the the the, the Rams. Um, allegedly, you know, using that tactic back in the day. Um, but you know, it's, there's just, there's so many things that teams are, that teams are willing to do. I mean, they just, you know, I think one of the really interesting things is, is most teams don't have a, a professional, uh, information collector. You know, they, they've got a lot of guys they have, well, they have usually an NFL, They'll have a security guy on their team who is, you know, usually a former FBI guy who knows a little bit at least about protecting information mm -hmm. and some defensive countermeasures. But a, a lot of teams don't have anybody who's really, you know, trained to gather information. And so a lot of times it's just left up to the coaches and their imaginations. And um, is someone, you know, who's, you know, made a living uh, gathering, protecting information. It's really interesting to me, you know, seeing, uh, you know, really a bunch of amateurs um although they're you know they can be very good at some of their stuff like film study mm -hmm. right i mean they you know um they're amazing at doing that level of stuff but when it comes to trying to think of some you know super spook spy techniques and whatnot um it's you know at times it's just really funny because uh, they make a hot mess of it which i think the book is full of some really funny stories yeah. um because they are amateurs and then at other times you know, they do a great job of it thinking outside the box, because let's face it, um, you know, you don't need to be a, 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 a spy or a super spook to have some good creative ideas on how you can collect information about other people. Um, you know, uh, wives and women have been doing that, you know, since the beginning of time. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, so it's, 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 I think, I think the book's a lot of fun. It's got a lot of uh, really, really great, interesting stories that I, you know, I was, I was very happy to be able to capture. Well, you would think too, especially back in the sixties, that a lot of the scouts who were doing, or the coaches too, who were doing that kind of thing <clears throat> had come from a war background from world war two. So they might've had a little bit more of a sensibility of how to conduct these kind of clandestine uh, missions, if you will, as opposed to maybe what some people would have today. Yeah. So that's one of the really surprising things, you know, that surprised me when I was doing the book was just how few teams have a professional collector in there. And um, so I'll give you an example, like uh, Ron Wolf worked uh he was a he was a scout for the um raiders um and he, during um the cold war he had worked um you know he he was a, he was a spy more or less doing um operations in berlin and when it came to being able to gather information on the assessments other teams had of prospects you know he was able to say hey i know you know that team, we don't have to worry about him drafting, you know, this player. They're they're not interested. They don't need that position. And frankly, their rating of this prospect was, you know, was low. And, you know, he he could, you know, he knew the intelligence and assessments of other teams because he was so good at collecting information. Right. And so when he was out on the road scouting, he was busy talking to other scouts, not just, you know, he was not just looking at players. He was assessing how other teams thought of those same prospects that he was looking at. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it gave the Raiders a huge advantage um, during the draft. 
And, you know, and, and Al Davis at the top of his game was one of the premier coaches um, and general managers. Um, and so, you know, he was really able to take advantage of that. And um, I think it really, it showed what could be done if you have those professionals, but a lot of times they're just, you know, they're, they're not around. Um, it seemed like the, you know, the Patriots now they've got a guy named um, Ernie Adams on their staff who is Belichick's right-hand man who most NFL fans don't know anything about. And he's probably one of the top three or four minds in all the professional football guys, a football savant. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been with, with Bill Belichick since high school. And they've, you know, um, And so, and he really runs the whole Patriots, you know, collection efforts and all this type of stuff. And so having a guy like that, who's got a photographic memory and who's, you know, this is really his job and his duty. This is what he does. And teams that are willing to allocate those type of resources and brains and experience to doing this well, they have a huge advantage. You know, there's a reason the Raiders are winning, you know, are winning championships in the seventies. There's a reason the Patriots are winning championships, you know, up until Tom Brady left and, you know, who knows how that goes in the future, but you know, um, it's, it's not, it's not pure dumb luck and it's not always just having the best players. I think I read an article one time about Ernie Adams where, um, I don't remember if it was Belichick describing him or one of the players, but they were talking about how he's a guy who really <clears throat> needs to know tendencies and he goes, as far as to know the tendencies of the refs and how frequently they call certain penalties and from what vantage point they are on the field. And, you know, are they more likely to do 50, 50 calls or if it's even a fraction of, you know, a parent or anything like that, if there's only like a minuscule bit of evidence that there was a penalty there, um, what they call it. So even down to the referees, Ernie Adams, Adams knows, you know, what a ref is likely to call or not. So even stuff like that could be a huge advantage when you're doing like toss up balls, you know? Yeah. That doesn't surprise me in the least. I mean, you know, the Patriots are known for all finding all the loopholes in the NFL rules. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that o- over and over. I mean, you know, it all gets attributed to Belichick, but I'm sure there's a lot of Ernie Adams in there finding those loopholes as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing that the Patriots do better than anyone is not, not just collecting information, which they do, and they're willing to cross some lines that other teams are not. And, and I, I think that's, you know, very evident, and I make that, you know, very clear in the book. But what they also do is how do you assimilate and use that information? Or how do you use your different types of collection platforms to verify information? Mm-hmm. So, for example, Jimmy Johnson who was coaching the Cowboys, when everything Spygate came out, he said, you know, during my time in Dallas, we did the exact same thing. We taped other teams, we taped other team signals, but we were not able to use that information effectively. And so we just stopped doing it. But Belichick and the Patriots, they know how to use it. And so they're doing stuff like advanced scouting. So you take those signals that you learn about and then you have your advanced scouts confirm it or learn it. And then you go back and study film. And once again, you have them do that. And then you debrief players coming in from other teams. Hey, we think this signal corresponds to this play. Is that still true? Yes or no. Right. You know, 
and and then they you know they look at you know potentially you're looking at stealing paperwork getting a hold of play sheets getting a hold of playbooks all these different methods that can be used to gather that information and so all of that plays into it and the teams that collect information effectively don't just rely on one method or one source they are constantly confirming and assessing because one method could be wrong and and teams are constantly changing right it's a it's a defensive countermeasure you have to constantly be changing your signals or your audibles or whatever it is because you know other teams are going to in the long run try to figure those out so well even yeah. ju- even just from signing uh, players they had cut yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's something all NFL teams do. And you either sign a player who has recently been cut for a te- from a team and you add them on to your current roster, sometimes just for the purpose of debriefing him. And then when, you're, when that week is done and you've played that opponent, those players get cut. Or you some, sign somebody, if you can't find someone available who you want to sign off that team, then you sign someone from their practice squad. Because if you bring that player up onto your regular roster, you can sign anybody from you can sign anybody off of another team's practice squad if you're willing to bring them onto your normal your normal you know 52 man roster. Right. Um, 52 is that right? I don't know, but whatever the number is. Um, and so, you know, that's that's constantly done, and that's just a part of the game, and everybody understands that. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and these guys that are signed. A lot of times they know that's the only reason they're being brought on, but they're happy to get a paycheck. You know, those guys that are on the bubble of being in in the NFL or seeing their careers just vanish, they're more than happy to have at least a weekly paycheck and to have a week to try to prove themselves that, hey, I'm worth more than just the information. I can catch footballs or run the football or whatever it is. You know, they have something to be able to bring to that team, and it's an audition for them. Yeah. So you mentioned on the bubble, something that I always love, especially as the more I get into football history, is about learning about people who are on the fringe of professional football who might be not necessarily well-known, but they had an impact in one way or another, but you'll never really hear about them. And one guy that I was really interested in reading about was Ed Boynton, who was the security chief for George Allen and the Rams. <laughs> and it sounds like he was a pioneer in his own right. Could you just tell the audience a little bit about him first before we move on? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, so Ed Boynton was kind of like a, uh, well, he was a, he was really a jack of all, all trades, right? So, um, he got brought in. I thought you were going to say a Jack Webb. Well, he, so he was like the first full-time security guy that was ever used, um, at first with the, uh, the Rams and then later, later with the, uh, with the Redskins as well. And, um, so, you know, whenever I'm trying to remember the name of the the coach who, uh, who had him, do you remember who that was? George Um, Allen. Yeah, George Allen. Thank you. So George Allen, um, you know, he traveled with him whenever he went and, you know, George Allen would get, you know, he would call it his, his spidey sense. You know, he'd be like, Hey, uh, I don't like, I, I got a bad feeling about this dude who's up on this roof up up there. You know, uh, Ed, can you, you know, go check it out. This is, this is, you know, it's probably a spy up there. So, you know, Ed would go and he would go and try to figure out why that guy was up there and ask him, you know, um, and, you know, maybe ask him to get down if it was, if it needed it. But 
you know, coaches are paranoid. And um, a guy like George Allen, you know, he was one of those guys that was involved in a lot of, um, uh, you know, questionable techniques. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he's paranoid. If there's a guy climbing up a telephone pole, he's thinking, uh, guess what? He's, you know, that's probably a spy, you know? And it's not a coincidence he's wondering that because right. these are the type of things that those coaches that are willing to, you know, exceed the bounds of propriety and the rule book, they're willing to go to these means. So they're absolutely paranoid on all this little stuff. And, and Ed Boynton was, you know, he, he was one of those first guys um, to look into it. And uh, I think one of the funniest stories with him was he was, he was you know, so – um, dedicated to his job that he would even review film of the sidelines trying to figure out if there was someone there who didn't belong because you know teams have used reporters in the past or photographers that like roam the sidelines that you know uh, go go back to the other side of the field and bring information to the coach on the other side mm -hmm. um, and my book's got a few examples of that taking place in the past so, you know, a guy like Ed Boynton, he's checking out the film, trying to see if this type of stuff is ha happening, you know. And at one point, he identifies someone, and he's like, ah, you know, who's that dude? You know, and he's reviewing the film. He's like, I can't, you know, can't figure it out, can't figure it out. Who is this guy? I got to figure it. And then he's like, oh, that's me. I was I was the one lurking back there uh, looking like a spy because, you know, because, you know, basically I am. And that's, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, that just gives you an idea of, you know, uh, you know, the level of, of paranoia and dedication that teams have to this. I mean, think about how boring just being a player reviewing film is probably, you know, I mean, coaches spend, you know, endless hours doing this, but if you're reviewing security footage, oh my gosh, you know, talk just about a job at a sideline. <laughs> right. But that's how dedicated these, these guys are um, to their craft and, and how important, um, you know, it can be because these guys, these guys catch spies. Yeah. you know, from other teams. And, um, you know, there's quite a few examples in the book of, you know, guys catching, you know, people trying to sneak through practice gates with cameras in hand, you know, and that type of stuff. Cause that absolutely, it goes on. And that's why you have these security guys doing their job and trying to catch them. Now, what about the NFL security personnel? Um, yeah, the, at the headquarter level at the, from NFL headquarters, I mean, do they play, any role in doing stuff like that where they'll try to see if a team is trying to spy on someone else uh, that, or if they suspect they're doing it illicitly or will they look to make sure that there's still a competitive um, fairness in looking at players who are on or people who are on sidelines to make sure no one's doing that or even looking at other leagues. I mean, obviously we touched base earlier about the AFL, NFL, you know, operation handholding and the babysitters and, stuff like that, that we can go into, but did you get any sense of how involved the NFL security department was with this? Yeah. So, uh, bottom line, not very, if at all. Mm. Um, so each team has one NFL security representative at a minimum, uh, for most teams, it's just one. And really, you know, they're more about, um, trying to deal with issues quietly when it comes to that local police force. Um, or, if, or if, you know, big incidences pop up on a team, like a player gets arrested, mm. um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we deal with all this? Um, you know, trying to prevent an issue like Deshaun Watson, uh, this type of thing from coming to light, Sure. because if it does, 
right? How much does that hurt the NFL's image? Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it you know, an action like Spygate um, taking a knee uh, for the national anthem, uh, Deshaun Watson, it's cost the NFL hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for every single incident like this. So, you know, that is their main focus is, is protecting that bottom line in dealing with that. Um, making sure that the game is not influenced by betting is the probably the major concern of NFL security. Because if it comes out that a player is throwing a game or shaving points um, in order to try to benefit financially from this, it calls into question the credibility of the game. And the NFL, above all, wants to portray the image that all the games are absolutely 100% fair and that there are no shenanigans going on that will um, you know, impact the outcome of the game. That it is the game of football and that is it. Um, even when that's not the case. So if you take Spygate and Deplategate, for example, and the, the punishments and the statements that came out of that, neither Roger Goodell or any member of the upper NFL um, you know, staff there at NFL headquarters ever made any statement that these types of activities impacted the game. And as a matter of fact, they went out of the way to say, we have no proof whatsoever that whatever happened in, had any meaningful impact on a game, mm-hmm. even though we know that's not true. Um, you know, take the plate gate, for example. You know, if you think, think about when you're a kid throwing around a football and the bigger that football is, right, the harder it is to throw. And the harder that football is, the tougher it is to catch. That's why we all love a Nerf football, right? Because it's small and it's soft and you can chuck that thing for 60 yards and look like a stud, right? <laughs> and that's what, guess what? That's what Tom Brady wanted too. It's not, you know, this, it's, it's not rocket science that, you know, having a, have, having a smaller football that's underinflated, it helps. But the NFL is never willing to admit that. And um, so it's all about protecting, protecting that image, what it comes down to. And, um, you know, by and large, the, the NFL is very reluctant to get involved in anything when it comes to the spying game. I mean, Spygate, for example, you know, they issued two memos to the Patriots, well, to the league as a whole, when the Patriots, when other teams had brought up to the NFL that, hey, these guys are videotaping our signals. The Jets weren't the first one to bring that up. And the NFL wasn't willing to do anything other than send a memo. Um, and then, they, you know, would the NFL ever had, had done anything if the Jets hadn't, like, literally forced the NFL to take action by literally taking into custody the, you know, the member of the Patriots staff that was recording the signals? Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh, right. I don't, I don't know. You know, um, yeah, that may have never, never come to, you know, um, come to light, or at least it would have been later down the road if the Jets hadn't forced the NFL's hand, because the NFL doesn't want to deal with that because it brings bad publicity on them. Well, and you got to wonder what was going through Belichick's mind to try to do that against one of his former assistants. 
And so like, I'm kind of curious, you know, like we're talking about countermeasures throughout the book. Like what countermeasure do you think Belichick could take so that other, you know, former personnel or employees or coaches don't blow the whistle on what he was doing? I, I mean, yeah, like I, N- NDAs, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, non-disclosure agreement, um, and, you know, that's standard with all the teams. So that prevents them from talking against uh, talking about, you know, the, the techniques um that go on there but you know i mean the bottom line is there are very few secrets like that in the nfl when it comes to you know um how teams operate because everyone wants to implement what they like um, on their own team right so any any good ideas are going to become standard policy throughout the nfl pretty quickly yeah when it comes down to it um yeah i mean really bilicek showed a lot of arrogance in deciding to go ahead and trying to gather that information um, on a team that had one of his former assistant coaches and knew exactly what he was doing. And, um, but he went ahead and tried to do it anyway. And um, yeah, there's obviously a lot of, um, I think he probably would have been better off just trying to skip that team um, and saying, you know what, let's not do it against them. Uh, Or let's try to gather the same information via a different technique. Um, But you know, um, when you've when you've won a lot of Super Bowls and you've had a lot of success doing it, you um, you know we all we're all creatures of habit, and um, you know, and I'm sure he that's a decision he would love to have back. Sure. Um, yeah. But but you know, um, we all make bad decisions at one point of our life, and um, you know he's a busy guy, so he that's probably one of those that he's like, yeah, I should have spent a little more time thinking about that one, and and I didn't, and but you know that's life and. Have you gotten a lot of heat from Patriots fans since the book came out? I haven't yet. I'm waiting for it, but (laughs) yeah, I was, cause I mean the the last, the last fourth of the book, I guess, or part four, I should say is dedicated to towards like them as a sole topic and going through the allegations from, you know, Spygate going on since like 2000 and then Deflategate and even the Super Bowl that Mike Martz had commented on them knowing, I guess the plays or watch the practices. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I spoke to Brian O'Leary, mm-hmm. uh, who was the author of, of Spygate. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, I talked to him about all his, you know, just experiences. And I could tell he was very um, – I could tell he'd taken a beating. Um, you know, he didn't want to say too much about all of it, but I, I could tell he'd, he'd definitely taken a beating. So I was kind of prepared for it. Um, I think – so a lot of time's gone by, you know, since everything. Spygate was obviously the big one that sure. everyone was like, you know, everyone had very strong opinions, um, and, and somewhat rightfully so, you know, because the NFL, even to this day, does not have a rule against taping other team signals. They've got a memo. But what is a memo? They don't you know, have a it's rule. Not, they, there's there's no rule, right? So and that's one of the really interesting. So you know, Patriots fans can argue that. Until that memo even came out, which was in 2006, the Ray Anderson memo, that the Patriots didn't do anything wrong. And as a matter of fact, many teams were doing the same thing. And there's stories in my book about how teams had done it in the past and done it very successfully. And you know what? It was legal. So, you know, eventually the Ray Anderson memo went out. The Patriots continued to tape other team signals and they were, you know, violating a memo. But, you know, I mean, violating a memo is not the same thing as violating a rule. 
Right. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's the NFL commissioner who makes his own rules uh, to an extent, right? He just decides what's punishable. And the NFL has a lot of, um, you know, basically fair play. They've got like a fair play rule, which more or less is like, hey, we expect you to act in a way that is professional and becoming and in the best interests of the NFL and to act in an ethical manner, et cetera, et cetera, which basically means act well or we can punish you. And it's kind of a catch-all. So the NFL really has way less rules than you would think they do about this type of subject. And, you know, if they need to punish somebody for something like spying on another team's practice, it's not because they have a rule on spying on another team's practice for the most part. It's just going to be, hey, we don't like the way you're acting. It put the NFL in a negative light. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, fair to the other teams. And so we're. Roger Goodell is going to come up with a punishment with eight of his lawyers, and and there we go. And that's what it is. And that's, by and large, how the NFL operates. Now, given that you have gone into so many different directions in the book and looking at these intelligence gathering methods, what were some of the ones that were most intriguing for you to learn about? Um, so I really loved uh, elicitation, um, just because I think it's a really – fun one, you know, and elicitation is really the art just of trying to gather information by talking to someone without them necessarily know that you're trying to collect information on them. So, um, you know, I think there's some, you know, obviously there's the one with Peyton Manning trying to get, you know, uh, players intoxicated, but, you know, I mean, Al Davis was the master of this uh, technique. And so, you know, there's stories in there of him allegedly um, calling up another team at halftime and pretending to be the owner of the team. So he's, you know, calls up, hey, I need to talk to coach so-and-so. And, you know, coach gets on the line. He's like, you know, and so uh, he's trying, you know, the, the other team's playing against his Raiders and he's trying to pretend like the owner of the other team so he can get the, you know, the secrets about, hey, what are we going to do? What are we going to change at the half? What are we going to do different? How are we going to react to this? You know, and, um, you know, or dressing up. You know, um, I thought that was, you know, how they spy. Um, I thought dressing up as reporters, there's a couple of great examples of that in the book. Um, Involving one with Al Davis. Yeah. yeah, one with Al Davis. Yeah, one was Al Davis. And, you know, he dressed up, went into another team's locker room as a reporter and asked the player, um, hey, you know, what's the toughest thing for you to defend against? And so, you know, the player gets out, you know, a piece of chalk or a marker and starts diagramming it on the board. He's like, Oh, I hate it when the other team does this. And Al Davis is just taking down notes, you know, (laughs) writing it all down. And, um, you know, but you know, Paul Brown, who was, you know, the first coach of the, the Cleveland Browns, it all, you know, he was using this tactic a long time ago, you know, dressing up, uh, having members of his staff pretend to be reporters and sending him them to the practices of other teams. And that's one of the reasons why teams are so paranoid about having members of the media watch their practices, because teams have been slipping spies in there since, you know, <laughs> since pretty much professional football has been around. Um, so, you know, it just it just goes to show like, um, you know, it, this this stuff's been going on forever. There's a lot of fun, creative tactics out there, and it's really just a matter of, you know, you can you can try to limit teams 
doing certain things, but it all evolves and it changes and it adjusts. And I think that's one of the, the funnest things to be able to see and look at in the book is, you know, stuff like, um, okay, teams go to indoor practice facilities for, you know, uh, for example, to try to hide, um, to try to, you know, so other teams can't watch their practices or at the very least, you know, or move their practice facilities to somewhere that's in the middle of nowhere. Um, like the Redskins and George Allen did with, 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 uh, Dulesville. Um, but, you know, you know, today, you know, you have drones out there that mm-hmm. can be used to potentially, you know, spy on another team's practices. Um, you know, instead of teams stealing their, you know, a, a, a dig, uh, regular old playbook, you know, it's all gone digital now. But of course, you know, just like information can be stolen off of your computer, um, if you got the right, you know, hackers out there going after it, the same stuff can be done in the NFL. So it's a cat and mouse game. You know, everything's, it's constantly changing and evolving. And I think that's what makes the subject so neat and so cool is, is the, the evolution of not just the, the, the game itself by the rules and how it changes um, by different techniques and what works the best, but that changes the spying in football too. And I think that's really neat to watch both kind of go hand in hand as one evolves, the other evolves as well. So you think that the future of espionage in the NFL could become more technologically focused as opposed to physical surveillance or, you know, sweeping rooms for physical copies and anything like that? Well, it will have, yes. However, having said that, there is always a place for the traditional methodologies that are used that teams use to gather and collect information you know there will always be it would always be beneficial to have a spy inside of another team you know to recruit a member of another team to to provide you information which is a topic that i have a lot of whole chapter about in the book you know there's that's just too valuable to go away you know spying on another team's practice having having a physical set of eyes out there it's always a possibility. It's always going to be beneficial, you know, and sometimes that's just like walkthrough practices where both teams, let's say before playoff game or before Super Bowl, where they're sharing a facility, um, trying to leave a spot, a guy behind to watch what the other team is doing, which the Patriots did before the Rams Super Bowl, you know, the Patriots Rams Super Bowl. Yeah. That's something that's those type of tactics. They're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're not going anywhere. But there'll be new ones that absolutely come into play. Um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, more it's going to be more digital. Um, that's going to be more of a concern. It's how do you protect that information? Um, you know, I talked to a drone expert who was telling me, um, you know, he could absolutely, he could, he's like, I mean, I could take a drone and fly it over a team's practice and they would have no clue it was there. Like, there's not even a chance. Like, it's just not going to happen. There's too many ways to be able to conceal it. Um, the stuff that you can, you know, the, the, the drones today that you can buy with just slight modifications, off-the-shelf stuff, he's like, for a few hundred bucks, no way. He's like, I could land it there at the facility and tape, tape all kinds of stuff. Um, and a matter of fact, you know, you could suck information. If they, if they connect their playbooks, um, you know, their tablets, and have their, play, and have their playbooks on those tablets, and are Wi-Fi connected, I could suck all that off too. I could have the whole playbook. Wouldn't even be a problem. It's like, that'd be, you know, simple as can be. Um, and he's at, that's all with, that's all with just off the shelf stuff. 
Yeah. You're not talking any super spy stuff right there. So absolutely. I mean, talk about big concerns. So teams absolutely have to be aware about that. And the good teams that are winning championships, they're going to be. And the teams that aren't, they're going to get their, man, they're, you know, they're going to have their, their pocket picked and not even have any clue that it's been done. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, right. that's, a, that's a big part. Have you ever seen uh, like the digital pick, uh, pickpocketing app that you can do to um, take off someone's like electronic signal from their credit card to get the number? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I haven't seen it, but I've read all about it, and yeah. I mean, imagine yeah. doing that to someone's phone where they have like their playbook in there or something like that, you know, <laughs> or so where they can access it at least. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, all this off the stuff shelf, you know, that is out there. I interviewed a guy who is a. Uh, technical surveillance countermeasures expert who which is more or less you know a guy that is trained to detect uh you know listening devices mm -hmm. and or you know hidden cameras and i was talking to him about that and he's like yeah i mean i mean there's this these things like a plug for your phone that are embedded with software so that you know it it introduces spyware so that once your phone is plugged into this charger Right after that, it has this malware in there and it can be turned on remotely. So, for example, if this if you can plant this, if you can have a person use this and switch it out with what is being used at a team's facility. It can infect one or more phones that is being you know utilized to charge. And then if that guy brings that phone into the locker room or into team meetings, it can be activated remotely and another team can be listening in on all of the conversations that are going on and taking place. So if you don't have experts that are watching out for all of this type of stuff, man, I mean, yeah, you can, get, you can end up with huge, huge, huge advantages off this type of stuff. And, um, you know, and trying to track down and prove what happened and when it happened and who is responsible and all of this stuff. Um, you know, other teams are going to cover the foot, their, you know, their, their steps. And so, um, yeah, teams, teams have to be, teams have to be wary. They have to assume the worst, even when it comes to things that are illegal, breaking laws. Um, you know, in college football, it's been known that listening devices, a listening device was used on another team. That is illegal. It has still been done. So you can't just say, oh, teams wouldn't go to this extent because it's against the law. Right. Yeah. This is a, you know, we're talking billions, tens of billions of dollars on the line. They're, they're, willing, break to the law. Cross, they're willing to cross thresholds. Yeah. yeah I, I, I thought that, you know, interrupting radio frequencies for a you know, quarterback or a linebacker's helmet was pretty high tech enough. But what you're talking about just seems like a whole another, it's a whole new ball game. Yeah. I mean, potentially, you know, and those are the questions that exist. So there's so many things. And I think that's what's the interesting part of the book is, you know, I can't confirm that everything, you know, that you can dream of and that experts say you should be scared of and that coaches in the NFL are worried about and keep them up at night. I can't confirm that they're all being used, right? but they can be, and teams have to and do take countermeasures to protect against these techniques, because if they don't, 
and they are used, it's lights out. Yeah. Game's over. The other team just won. Is the college football book that you're writing like the same territory or is there going to be like a new wrinkle from Spies on the Sideline? It is, but there's, you know, there's quite a few new wrinkles because of the rules that are different between college football and the NFL. So I'll give you an example. Advanced scouting doesn't take place in college football by and large. Um, uh, there's some, there's some room for exceptions to take place, but, um, but what that means is, so if you want to, let's say, learn another team's, you want to steal signals. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the prime times to do it is you send advanced scouts there that maybe that try to learn, uh, the signals that, you know, all the cards that teams hold up or the hand signals that quarterbacks flash to call an audible. Those are all things that the advanced scouts look at and try to figure out while that team is playing their opponents, um, their upcoming opponents. So if you can't do that in college football, what do you do? Well, I, you rely on other techniques or you break rules and send people anyway. But who do you send, right? Um, you can't really send members of your coaching staff which has happened mm -hmm. and has created quite a few scandals in the past. And that'll be on front line. If you're a member of another coaching staff and you're seen at another team's games like that, um, that's in the press. It's, you know, it's going to be front page news. Right. So what can you do? Well, you can send a player of your team because mm -hmm. they're not forbidden to go. And they do. Uh, you can send boosters um, to bring back information. So the techniques are very different. So it all differs in how it can be collected. And then in Spies on the Sidelines, I go into the NFL draft, how teams assess prospects, how they, assee, how they assess how other teams evaluate uh, prospects. Mm -hmm. But in college football, it's all about, uh, it's all about um, obviously, you know, um, recruiting. recruiting, right? And that's so different. Um, and then you have everything now with the, you know, names, images, and likeness on how that affects recruiting, as well as the one-time transfer rule, which is looking like it's going to go to the unlimited transfer rule. So what you have there is <clears throat> now teams are not just worried about recruiting a player once, and we're going to have them on our team for four years, right? Because if, let's say, Arizona State has a stud cornerback who's good enough to go play for anybody, guess what? Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, they're all going to come calling on that player between his freshman and sophomore year or whenever he shows that he's a stud. Right. And so if, you know, Arizona State wants to keep this guy, they've got to re-recruit re this guy year after year after year. And then, you know, there becomes this interesting world out there of what do you got to do to recruit people? And that's an intelligence operation all its own when it comes to recruiting guys yeah. and what goes into that. And it's, it is absolutely wild. And frankly, it is more disheartening than anything that I ever found in the NFL. I can and, see that. and some of the stuff that goes on in college football recruiting would just, it, it turns your stomach. Um, well, it's, I think sports illustrated, 10 years ago had, I think you mentioned in the book actually about Oklahoma state 
I want to say how they were using like, uh, you know, underhanded tactics to recruit players to go to the university. It was supposed to be like this big expose about, you know, corruption in college football. I don't remember what the name of the exact article was, but it was like a five part series, maybe four part. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like, and there's been obviously books written about that too, but that seems like it'd be a a timely book, especially with the new NIL uh, rules that are in place. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for, Spies on the sidelines, one of the topics I was really interested to find more information about, but wasn't really able to. And there's a few of those, right? I would have, and, and I, I, I've had some more luck when it comes to the college football. And so that's why I think it's, it's, that book's going to be a little different and, and, and have some interesting wrinkles that I wasn't able to unre- reveal in Spies on the Sidelines. But one of those topics I wanted to get into was the use of attractive females to try to gather information. Because let's face it, when it comes to international espionage, right? That's the oldest trick in the book. Right. You know, we call it a, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a honeypot, mm-hmm. or you know, um, the femme fatale. So, right. Yeah. So, um, and you you know you alluded to it. I mentioned how you know, um, um, in 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 college football, it had been used in the past um, by a reporter wanting to get more information and pretending to be. Um, someone else and developed a relationship with a college football player um, for the purposes of, of trying to gather information about how drugs um, were being, you know, used by, by a team at large. Um, But, you know, same, same deal, attractive female, it can be used for the same thing, gathering more, um, you know, more information that is out there. And that's just, you know, that's one of the team, you know, tactics that I'm sure absolutely teams use, um, I'm sure they use, uh, you know, if a te- if players are going out drinking, um, if I was in charge of a head, you know, security guy of a team, you know, I'd be warned, hey, other teams, opponents are going to put attractive females in front of you. <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, players, you know, playbooks have gone missing. You know, they spend the night with a female and then playbooks go missing. That's been known to happen. So, if you if you think that's you know just at random, you know that's 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 an operation. Yeah. That's a well planned out operation targeting these guys, and that's the type of stuff that that absolutely a hundred percent goes down. And you know there you can't always find as much information as you would like on all of these topics because it's secretive. Teams don't want to reveal it. Um, Feels like for that you would also need to find like a like a rolodex from a coach that would have resorted to that kind of tactic like yeah, of, of, of like it, of like names to call right and who's going to want to reveal that right you yeah. know who's going to want to taint their legacy and and you know sometimes coaches are gone long enough that they're willing to go into that but if you think bill belichick's going to write uh, a memoir on all the strategies he used that were illicit to yeah. gather information you know yeah. it ain't happening you know these guys that are winning six seven super bowls aren't tainting their legacies and coming out with, Oh, here's all the ways I cheated to be able to attain greatness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not happening. No. I was Peyton Manning to get some drunk and they just start writing a book. But there we go. There's our hope. Yeah. Let's do it, Peyton. Yeah, man. <laughs> do you want to tell everyone where they can get the book, Kevin? Yeah. So you can go to my, uh, it's, it's on Amazon. First of all, uh, you can find it there. Uh, you can also go to my website, spies on the sidelines.com. And it has all the different ways you can buy the book out there. Um, I will say there's cheaper, there's a cheaper way than Amazon. If you buy through the publisher, Roman and Littlefield, 
which I've got the link on my website and enter the promotion code that I've got there. You can get 30% off the hardcover book. So um, the book's out in hardback, um, in ebook, and also audiobook. Um, the audiobook's not out on Amazon, but I've got lots of other uh, ways that you can grab it. I will say the audiobook is half the price of all the others. So if you're looking to save the money, uh, some money, the audiobook is the way to go. I'm also going to give away for the month, at least the month of August and September. I'm looking at giving away four different copies of the audiobook. And all you got to do is uh, follow me on Instagram or Twitter to be able to. Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to, you know, randomly select a person and I'll, I'll direct message them and say, you're the winner and here's your code to be able to use that. So, um, my Instagram and all my handles are on my, my webpage. You can find it, but I'll give out my Instagram and Twitter one, uh, for anybody who wants to copy it down. Um, my Instagram is at Kevin Bryant dot author. So Kevin Bryant dot author and my Twitter is at Kev, just K-E-V, Bryant author. So at Kev Bryant author. Yeah. And um, yeah, get a chance to get a free book. Um, and even if you, you know, buy the buy a regular version, you, you know, give it to a buddy, give it to a family member, uh, makes a great gift. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as someone who <clears throat> finished reading the book yesterday, I can definitely add a testament to that, that it's definitely a unique book, one of a kind. It's not a topic that you're going to find a lot, if anything, written on. And you did a magnificent job of really bringing in a lot of stories together and really breaking down. I mean, I've, I've mentioned that, I guess, two or three times now, but it's more than just, you know, a clandestine secret agent operative kind of book that people might get when they look at it. It's really also a look about scouting and about um, breaking down film and how coaches utilize everything at their disposable at their disposal to find a competitive edge. Um, so I'm really glad that you took the time to come on. And I hope the conversation was as fun for you as it one for me, because I love this kind of stuff and everything in this book, I think was long. Mm -hmm.